I'll be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her son who was called. Baron, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Chad. Morning, Redemption. Whoa. So sorry. Okay. So in the first service, I went around the front. Nothing bad happened. So tonight at five, do you think I'm going to, and never mind. It's not important. All right, good morning again. Thank you, Chad. We did all that, right? Okay. Uh, so, my name is Frank. Actually, it's Cody, <laughs> if you're new. <clears throat> Fix your wagon. All right, so, anyway, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. We are glad that you are here. If this is your first time here, you're, you're welcome to be here. We always have new people here every Sunday, but the Sunday after Thanksgiving, there seems to be so many more new people because people are in from out of town. So we're glad that you've uh, decided to come and worship with us this morning. Uh, we start a new series, our usual Advent series um, today. We're going to do four weeks uh, talking about really the Christmas story, but we think in a fresh way this time, maybe a way that hasn't necessarily been approached by you before. If you're familiar with that story, if you're new to this story, this is going to be a great time for you. We look forward to how you'll respond to this as well. And just to give you a little insight for next year, 2017, the folks at Redemption have decided that we are going to go through the book of Acts during 2017. So uh, pretty much all year right up to Advent 2017, we'll be working through uh, that wonderful book of Acts uh, during 2017, so you can look forward to that. So talking about Advent and how we're going to approach it this year, um, I, I know that um, I, I like movies, most people know that, and, and usually before a movie is released, the distributors and the producers, the studios of the movie will get together with uh, the people who are going to be showing the movies, Harkins or AMC or whoever, and, and very often they'll have what's called a reveal party or a preview party uh, before the movie gets released to the general public. Uh, and to get invited to one of these reveal parties is really kind of special. You've got to be someone special. You've got to be in the media or somebody who's, you know, well-off or influential or powerful or whatever. A couple of semesters ago, I teach, at, uh, I teach communication at Paradise Valley Community College, and a couple of semesters ago in my class was uh, the executive director of one of the largest film critic associations in the state of Arizona. 
and he started handing me these uh, tickets to these reveal parties. Every, so every other week, uh, I got to go to these reveal parties. And, and I didn't just get tickets to get into the building. He was giving me VIP tickets. So not only did I get into the building, but I got into the building through the special entrance where there was nobody else, practically. I got free popcorn, and I also got to sit in a very special place with all the other special VIP people. And it was interesting because nobody knew who I was, but I knew who a lot of pe other people who were, you know. This was a big, influential crowd. It was really cool, and I was treated well because I knew uh, Joshua. This was usually at, believe it or not, Tempe Marketplace. They have a lot of these reveal parties, always on Monday night, so apparently nobody will notice that they're going on. So a lot of cool people there. Uh, but of course, once these previews and reveal parties are done, they release the movies. I was in the restaurant business for a while, years and years ago. We used to do this in the restaurant business, too. Before a new restaurant would open, we'd have kind of a, a, a sneak preview to the restaurant, only inviting the media and influential people who could really make a difference for uh, the business. And the reason that you do this is to kind of create a buzz and get some word of mouth going before something actually uh, opens. And... It's for good public relations. I remember those restaurant openings back in the early and mid-80s that, that we would have. And the, the photographer and the journalist from the society page of the Arizona Republic would come out and take pictures. And then Sunday morning in the Sunday morning edition of the Arizona Republic, some of you are looking, okay, so... <clears throat> The Arizona Republic is called a newspaper, and that's how people from my generation used to get their, their news, okay? So, uh, and now it's all social media, but they'd have these pictures and everything, and it would help the new business. In a way that's, that's a little bit similar, Christmas, or Jesus' birth more specifically, marks the time when God began his closing act of the long story of his redemption, and it's his reveal party of how he's going to do it. The Messiah is being born. Now, it's interesting because before a movie gets released, you know, we see lots and lots of previews, and then it finally gets released. The Old Testament was lots and lots of previews, sort of trailers of the fact that the Messiah was coming. The Old Testament would talk about this, especially, in particular, Isaiah chapter uh, 53. And, and this is the reveal party of, of the Messiah, that, that his son is, son is coming. The, re, the, the, the one way to be redeemed in this world from our sin. The only way, and it's going to be Jesus. Jesus is the only one who reconciles us to the Father. There is no other name by which we can be saved. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way. The definite article is there. There's no other way. I am the truth. There, there is no other truth. I am the life. There's no other life. And in case we missed it, he then says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This was the Father's reveal party. He's revealed to the world so that all might know and understand that the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus says at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. And, and his ministry, his birth, everything, his life introduces like this. Uh, the thing that's different, though, about his reveal party is that his guest list consisted of mostly people that we wouldn't necessarily invite to a business reveal party because uh, the list doesn't include people that we would imagine might be on it. The, the rich people weren't on this list. The super religious, none of the professional religious, not one Pharisee that I know of was invited to this party. Uh, in fact, the king, Herod, tried to put an end to this party, if you know the gospel story. 
Uh, it's not the powerful that get, got invited to this reveal party. And, and in fact, here's who got invited. The very first person was a teenage, young, unmarried, pregnant woman. Uh, the picture of unrighteousness in her culture. Uh, someone who would have been completely scorned and, and marginalized. Um, shepherds. This was revealed specifically to shepherds. Shepherds would be, some people have compared them to today's migrant worker. Somebody who does a lot of work that many other people wouldn't necessarily want to do and works hard and, and are often scorned by people. Shepherds in their day did very important work, but it was hard, miserable work with hard, miserable, stubborn animals. And their job was 24-7, and they got virtually no thanks for it. Not a lot of sheep walking around thanking their shepherds, okay? And we find that even in the birth of Jesus, right after that, their whole family had to become uh, refugees in Egypt. They had to go somewhere else. So we would say that this reveal party was, in, in many respects, first to the least, the last, and the lost. Yet all of it was to reveal Jesus as what we might call today the people's champion. He's the Savior. This Advent, like I said, we want to look at this Christmas story, which even if you haven't been around church at all or very much, you've probably heard snippets of. We're hoping to look at it in a new and fresh way and maybe see how the Lord Jesus revealed himself not just to the people that you and I might expect, but to the very unlikely people that he revealed himself to and continues to reveal himself to. And our prayer and hope this Advent season is that we would join in the mission of God and respond to his grace and his action by also being a blessing to these unlikely people. You see on your black card that you got when you came in today that our Advent offering is going specifically uh, to the very type of people that we're talking about were at this reveal party, the, the, the uh, orphans, the, the prisoners, and the refugees. So we're intentionally moving in this direction. So this first message of Advent is, is about Mary. It's the story of Mary as told through the Gospel of Luke. And here's our big idea today. And I know this is a long, wordy, big idea, but I'm a wordy guy. I'm sorry about that. But here it is. God works in and through unlikely people and unlikely circumstances. I, I want you to really get that. God works through unlikely people and very unlikely circumstances, including fear, confusion, poverty, and unplanned pregnancy, specifically in the case of Mary. Let me reread what Chad read to us, make a few comments, and then unpack it uh, further and, and get to our points uh, Luke records this, in the sixth month, so what does he mean by the sixth month? Well, Mary's cousin Elizabeth, we find out later in the passage, Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who was barren and really thought to be too old to have a child, she and her husband Zachariah ended up having, uh, becoming pregnant, and she's now six months pregnant, and oh, by the way, she's pregnant with John the Baptist, somebody who's kind of key to the whole uh, gospel story. So the reference in the sixth month is to Elizabeth's pregnancy. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Many people know Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, to a virgin betrothed, she was engaged to be married to a man whose name was Joseph, and he was of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29 is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying, 
Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was troubled by this. Uh, you, you know, we think we're the only people ever born in this world that are suspicious of a greeting like that. It sounds like maybe she was a little bit suspicious. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Who, who, who are you trying to manipulate here, angel? Okay. Uh, so she was trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him a th the throne of his father, David. So this David thing keeps re recurring. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will, it, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So you see right away a couple of terms that might need some explanation, the house of David and, and uh, virgin. So Joseph, uh, who is going to be Jesus' adopted father, uh, his ancestor was King David from a thousand years earlier. He is of the line of David. And the Old Testament is very clear about letting us know that the anointed one, which is what Messiah means, the Messiah is going to come through King David's line. And so it's important that Joseph is of King David's line. So all of that uh, lines up. Even though he's the adopted father, he's still of David's line. And then this word virgin, okay? Uh, in Isaiah chapter 7, this is 700 years before the birth of, uh, of Jesus, uh, Isaiah writes these words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us, which is Jesus. So we have to understand what virgin means, too. So everybody wants to do a word study on the word virgin, especially when they hear about this for the first time and are a little bit skeptical about this, which I understand. So the word is used both in the Hebrew and the Old Testament and the, the Koine Greek in the New Testament as well. And in both places, it means this, a young unmarried maiden who has not yet been intimate with a man. So somebody who couldn't possibly be pregnant. So the Holy Spirit is going to be the father of Jesus. Think about the implications of that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And then verse 28, verses 28, 29, and 30. You know, Gabriel says, you found favor. And, and God is with you. So the question comes up because this is how Mary responds. And I think you and I respond this way very often too. When we believe that we have found favor with God, but we're a little iffy on what that might mean. Because very often, finding favor with God means that you will not find favor with people. Right? Those two are very often diametrically opposed. So what do we do when we found favor with God, God has blessed us. He's given us the gift of Jesus. We understand that. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. But that is not exactly going to translate into favor with other people. I think this is one of the biggest challenges of our faith. Certainly in pastoral counseling, it's one of the biggest issues that I deal with is people come in asking, how do I live my faith in a world that doesn't care for my faith and, and in fact, is antagonistic toward my faith? 
I was reading a story a couple weeks ago about uh, parents who are concerned that their Christian faith and convictions will cause their children to be ostracized. And they're trying to figure that out. Do they hide their faith uh, so that they can still play with all the kids? Uh, there are adults who actually hide their faith in the workplace because they're worried it's going to hold them back. That uh, given a promotion and they're exactly the same as the other person, the fact that they believe in Jesus could be the, thing, the deciding factor negatively uh, for them. And I understand that. It's perfectly understandable. But do you think Jesus didn't know this was coming? Jesus warned us all through the New Testament that this was coming, especially in, in the Gospel of John. Chapters 13 through 16, he's spending the last night before he's crucified with his disciples, and he's teaching them some very important things, and some things that are, quite frankly, challenging. And at the end of all of this, at the end of chapter 16, verse 33, he said, these words I have spoken to you so that you might have peace. Now understand that Jesus' peace is way different than what the world calls peace. We need to understand that. I think Tom defined it a couple of weeks ago really well. Um, the peace of Jesus is not the absence of turmoil, but it's the presence of God. But the world wants a peace where there's just an absence of turmoil, an absence of uh, disruption and destruction, an absence of, of inconvenience. That's not the peace that Jesus gives. He says, I'm going to give you my peace because I'm going to be with you. And then what's the next line after that? He says, in this world, you will have trouble. You ever seen those little uh, promises of God books? You know, you open it up and you read all these promises that God has for you, and it sounds like everything's going to be just wonderful. I don't think that verse is in there, the promises of God. In this world, you will have trouble. The editors, I believe, decided to keep that verse out because that doesn't sell. But then Jesus says right after that, but take heart because I've overcome this world. That's his way of saying, I'm with you. I am with you in the midst of this. Nevertheless, Mary's greatly troubled at the saying. And we understand that. And maybe she's troubled because she only heard the first part of the saying and not the second part. The first part was, oh, favored one. The second part is God is going to be with you. And really, that's the key. Even though you're favored and it's going to be hard... God is with you, and, and, and his MO is not to take you around things or to stop uh, tribulation, but rather to be with you as you go through the tribulation. There's another Joseph in Scripture in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, 13 chapters on this guy named Joseph. And, and the theme of the story of Joseph in Genesis is what? And the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him when his brothers uh, threw him into a well and sold him into slavery. The Lord was with him when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of, of making sexual advances towards him or her. The Lord was with him when he was thrown into the dungeon. The Lord was with him when he thought he was going to get out the next day, and it was two more years. But the Lord was also with him when he was promoted to be the second most powerful man in the world at that time. The Lord was with him the whole time. Whether it was a challenging time or whether it was a good time, the Lord was with him. And that's what we want from God, really. We pray for lots of things, and we should, but the number one thing we should pray for is that his presence is with us. And that is a promise of God. You know that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, he says, I'll never leave or forsake you. The, the number one admonition that Jesus gives in the New Testament, more than 500 times, he says, do not be afraid. Well, why, 
why Jesus? Why shouldn't we be afraid? Because he's with us. That's why we shouldn't be afraid. Because he is going to walk along with us. And one of the interesting things about Mary's story, of course, is, is she, she knew the Old Testament. She knew the history and the theology of what was going on. She knows the Messiah is going to come through David's line. She married a guy from David's line. She's heard of all the virgin talk, and now she's going to be pregnant, even though she hasn't been with Joseph yet. She gets the implications of this, but here's what's happening to her. All of her plans. And remember, she's probably 14, 15 years old. All of her plans for life, completely disrupted. Her script for her life, I mean, completely just taken away from her. Her hope for a life without disruption, completely gone. Uh, research has shown clearly that you and I, as human beings, we have scripts in our brain for everything. We have one big script, a meta script, for how we think our life is going to turn out. We have that script when we're a little kid. When you're a little kid and people would come up, what are you going to be when you grow up? That's part of your script. Now, now, we understand as we grow older, our script gets edited and changes, but our script is always edited and changed to assume that the best is going to happen to us. Our script is always one of, of, uh, of, of wonderful wealth and a good career and wonderful relationships and a perfect marriage or a perfect singlehood, whatever it is. For married people, being single again, their scripts, our scripts change, and it's always for something better. Our scripts never include disruption and tension and suffering. They never include that. And our little scripts as well, the same thing. We have scripts for everything that happens in our lives, even things that we've never done before. If you've never been to Europe and now you're planning your first trip to Europe, you have a script for that. And if your script gets violated while you're in Europe, it'll cause angst or anger or frustration. It'll cause you to communicate differently. It'll cause you to think differently about things. But we have script for things, scripts for things like going to the doctor, for, for stopping at Cartel or Lucy's or the Henry for coffee. I want to make sure my parking space is open. I want to make sure there's no line at the Henry. I want to make sure they have cold creamer in the, in the little distributor. And I want to be able to get out of there within five minutes. That's my script. And if my script gets violated, it's a disruption. It's suffering. And we never anticipate that there's going to be that. And we're frustrated when it is. How frustrated was Mary with this? We want a life without disruption and tension. Uh, that's called utopia, and human beings have been pursuing that for centuries now, and we're not doing very well at it, are we? By the way, is this the life Jesus lived? Did he live a life without disruption and interruption? Read the Gospels. That was his life. His life was one disruption and interruption after another, and he responded with grace and truth every time. Sometimes he led with truth, sometimes he led with grace, but it was always both. He lived a life of disruption. He knew that this was coming. But she had to have been confused, too. Even though she knew about the virgin talk, she's saying, I don't understand how the Messiah can come through this scandal, because this is going to be very scandalous in my world. This is going to be very scandalous in my community. And so she questions. Verse 34, she, she, I, I mean, don't we question as well? Aren't we skeptical when God starts calling us to something that there's no way we could see how God is going to be able to work that out? Don't we, don't, don't we sometimes pray, and we won't say it out loud, but we'll pray for something, and at the end of the prayer, we will think to ourselves, there's no way God's going to do this one. 
But sometimes he does. And then when he does, we get skeptical and we get confused and we're afraid. She says in verse 34, how can this be because I'm still a virgin? Literally in the language, it's how can this be because I have never been with a man? If she were to say it today, she might say something like this. Uh, uh, Gabriel, this is biologically impossible. Yo. Something like that. Very contemporary. Uh, five years ago, okay? All right. But then how does Gabriel answer? Gabriel engages her, but how does he answer? Here you go. He, he doesn't say, here's what I feel. He doesn't say, this is what my heart is telling me. He doesn't say, this is what my experience has been. Not that those things are necessarily bad. We need to talk about our experiences. But he leads with facts. Do you notice that? He leads with facts. He says, here you go. The Holy Spirit is going to be the father of your child. This is huge. By the way, read through the Gospels. Read through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit, it's amazing how often the Spirit gets mentioned. Those of us who emphasize Jesus, and we should emphasize Jesus, but those of us who emphasize Jesus should not do it at the expense of the Holy Spirit. He's the third member of the Trinity. He's God, and he does a lot. And we're going to see that next year in 2017. I can't wait to get there. I've been reading ahead. It's good stuff. It's the Bible. It's good stuff. The Holy Spirit. And it's also important to understand, well, what are the implications that the Holy Spirit fathered Jesus? He's going to be born without this sinful nature, which means he can be the perfect sacrificial lamb. He'll be the perfect sacrifice, the last sacrifice, the sacrifice that finishes all sacrifices because he is absolutely perfect and holy. And he's the one that redeems us from all of our sin. And then he talks about the power of God. It's a fact. God is powerful. He talks about Elizabeth. He says, your cousin Elizabeth. See what happened to her? She was barren, but nothing is impossible with God. He gives her facts. He talks about how that her son is going to be the son of God. It's a fact. Nothing is impossible with God. These are not opinions. These are, these are facts. And Mary responds. She says, I'm, I'm in. I'm in for this. I am the Lord's servant, whatever it takes. And immediately, here's what she does. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste, that means very quickly, into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, her cousin. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's that Holy Spirit again. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Even Elizabeth is sitting there going, I know the Old Testament too. This is fulfilling the prophecy. You have the... The Messiah is in your womb, Mary, and why are you blessing me? We just live out here in the hills. You know, we, we, the subway doesn't even come all the way out to our place, man. We're just out here doing our thing, and you came out to talk to us, to bless us. And, and I think that the Spirit compelled Mary to go out there for this reason. Very often, I found also that when God asks us to do something really hard, and we're wondering how that's going to happen, Sometimes in his grace and his mercy, he gives us little confirmations and affirmations along the way. And I think that's what he's doing with Mary. Think about 
just the enormity of what Mary's going through. She goes up there and she's getting confirmation from her cousin, older cousin, who's wiser, that this is what God has called her to do. She's being affirmed and confirmed in a time that's very, very difficult for her, where she has no idea what's going to happen and what the future holds for her. And she's so excited by this that she responds by singing a song, very famous song. We call it the Magnificat. Listen to the words of this song. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's Mary describing herself. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's not arrogant. She's just saying what is actually going to happen. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It's a gospel of reversal. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The Magnificat, that word means to magnify, to, to enlarge, to reflect, and to exalt. And it's a psalm of thanksgiving. She's thankful for God's grace, God's favor, God's mercy, and God's power, and God's working in her life. And she says, God is my savior. This is really important for us to get. Mary needs a savior. Mary is not sinless. She knows that. She recognizes that. And she knows that in the, in the midst of this, she too is going to be saved from her sin. Jesus is the only person ever born who was sinless because the Holy Spirit was Jesus' father. And she says, God has looked on me. He's taken notice of me. He's chosen me and shown me favor. She's not arrogant. She's honored. She's saying, I can't believe this. I can't believe this is happening to me in my humble estate. Here's our definition today of her humble estate. Mary is nothing that the world desires or values. And Mary has nothing that the world desires or values. This is what God does. He takes those very often, and this is hard for some of us. He takes those who are filled with shame, and he uses those who are filled with shame to shame those who are filled with arrogance. The gospel doesn't turn things upside down. It turn things, turns things right side up. This is what God does. I mentioned Isaiah 53 earlier. Let me just read some of these verses to you. This is who God chose to save the world through. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah's describing Jesus. He's describing the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace. 
He was chastised so that we might have peace. And with his stripes we are healed. This here is describing the crucifixion. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We walked away. Jesus got our iniquity and we're saved as a result of it. It's amazing. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That's our Messiah. That's our Savior. And, and Mary says, all generations will call me blessed. So we're 2,100 years later after this, and we're still calling Mary blessed. She's remembered more than any king, any president, any entrepreneur, any CEO, any athlete, any entertainer, any important person. She's remembered more than all of them. So she's a prophet as well by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this song, you hear God's salvation story repeated very briefly. Nevertheless, she gives us a history lesson in the midst of this song. And I mentioned earlier, there's that gospel of reversal. It's not that having wealth or our fill of food is a bad thing. Nothing wrong with that. But the minute we find our identity in it, the minute we make it our God, when we bask in those things rather than in the grace, truth, and mercy of Jesus, we're going to find out what real truth is, and that's that the gospel reverses the playing field. Later in the book of Luke, in, in chapter 16, Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Complete reversal of what happens here on earth. It's very good. The gospel redeems what the world despises. So Mary, think about Mary. She's a teenager, she's poor, she's unmarried, she's pregnant. She is the picture of unrighteousness. That, that just Mary, unrighteous. She had to wear that t-shirt around in her little town of Nazareth. Very transparently, I will tell you, one of the biggest challenges I have as a minister, and I know that other ministers have this challenge as well, one of the biggest challenges is the judgment we receive whenever we work with people who are new to the faith, or have not yet crossed that line, they haven't said, okay, I'm in, they're still exploring and discovering their faith. And while that's going on, they also really haven't done things right. They're not living the life that, they, that we know that they're called to as Christians. That they're not quite there yet on the holiness meter. And so to spend time with them often brings some measure of scorn from people who feel like they've made it with Jesus. Why are you spending time on them? Look, they've done that wrong. Why are you counseling with them? They're in a situation that we just can't honor. Pregnant out of wedlock, living together. And by the way, very often the raw honesty that comes with really not understanding the faith yet. There's some honesty there that, that surprises some people. I remember when I was going to a Baptist church when I was trying to figure all this out, and even after I had walked an aisle and checked the box for Jesus, 
I would walk into some places and say some things that would just put people on their ears. What's wrong with him? Well, you know, still trying to figure it out. People want ministers to be able to somehow, this is never said out loud, but this is the sense we get. They, they want us to wave a magic wand or sprinkle some Jesus dust and make these people whole, wholesome and righteous before we, before we accept them in, into whatever it is that we think we're in. You know, the temple had uh, different courts. The old temple in Jerusalem had different courts. And they had the Holy of Holies in the center. Only, only the chief priest could go in there once a year, and that was it. And then there was a little bit... Uh, bigger court where the really pious could get in there, the priests and stuff, and, and it just kind of kept going out until there was the court of the Gentiles on the very outside. The Gentiles were allowed into that court out there, but they weren't part of Israel, they weren't part of God's chosen, but maybe they feared God and they were exploring and they wanted to ask questions, they wanted to know, well, you can stand out there. Here's one of the things that troubles me about the church today. We don't build courts. We don't have walls for that, but we have our courts. Amen? We have our courts. We build these walls with attitudes and coded language and things like that. And, and let me tell you something. I, I'm chastising myself here just as much as anybody else. I've done this too. I've also been on kind of the receiving end of that as well, and, it, and, it's, and it's hard. I, I believe... I believe that if Mary walked in here today, some of us would probably, like, try to direct her somewhere else where she could get counseling, you know? Mary, why do we do that? Here's why. It's because we just don't trust. We, we struggle with trust, right? We, we, tr we struggle with tr We don't trust that God is working. We, we can, in a Bible study, we can quote, you know, Romans 8.28, Paul says, and we know all things God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we're not sure that we really believe that. It's funny, in the New Testament, the word that we translate as believe, as faith, and as trust are the same word. If you believe, if you have faith, we're also called to trust. We're called to trust. It's an issue of trust. We have we have such a problem with it. If we see something that makes us feel uncomfortable or is not familiar or is not what we would have done or is awkward, we don't trust. We don't trust that God is working, that he can redeem, that he'll be honored, and that he can do it in any way that he pleases through anyone that he pleases. Poverty, pregnancy, fear, confusion, even unrighteousness. Uh, years ago, I, I had been a Christian for about a year, and I was part of um, the leadership team in a uh, college and young marriage ministry and one of the big leaders of this ministry got up and was speaking to the whole group about a hundred of us one Sunday morning and this is a true story she said this she said you know I drive around in Phoenix and I'm just a little bit disturbed when I see one of those Jesus fish on a car that you know it just really doesn't measure up it's older it's kind of beat up it's you know it's a poor car that, that doesn't reflect well on our Savior. If we're going to use these Jesus fish, we've got to make sure we put them on nice cars. And even then, just a year into it, I was, it was all I could do to keep myself from pulling my hair out and running from there screaming. Because I just know that's not right, right? But we build these walls. We build these courts. We have it in our mind that we've got it figured out. And here's Mary. Here's Mary. 
God, in fact, is the one we can trust. We get burned, I know, relationally. We get burned in business. We get burned by friends. We get burned in the neighborhood. We get burned by a spouse. And we say things like, I will never trust again. Anybody ever said that? I, I will only trust myself. We say these things. And they're perfectly understandable. I've been there as well. Uh, Stephen King wrote that. We don't often quote Stephen King in church. But he wrote this. <laughs> he wrote this. The trust of the innocent is the liar's most useful tool. But George MacDonald also wrote this, to be trusted is a greater compliment than being loved. And Frank Crane comes along and says this, and this is true. You may be deceived if you trust too much, but you will live in torment if you never trust at all. And that's true. God can be trusted. Mary trusted, and so can we. Mary had her time of doubt and skepticism and asking questions, and we do too, and we should. But ultimately, it's going to boil down to at some point, trust. And Mary's story reminds us of four things that are true about us as well that figure into this whole formula. Number one, life is unpredictable, right? Do you think Mary had planned this? Do you think she got up as a little five-year-old going, I'm going to be the father of the Savior? She didn't, do, she didn't have this plan. This wasn't her script. And by the way, this didn't violate her script. It destroyed her script. Completely destroyed it. It was devastated. Our scripts are written by us. That's true. In our minds. But God is the editor. And sometimes he edits big. He edits big. We like to think that we're in control, but we're not. So life is unpredictable. This proves it. And we know it, but we struggle with it. And that leads to number two. Suffering is real. Mary suffered. Think about Mary's suffering. Uh, she had to walk around in this town now being scorned and ridiculed. And oh, by the way, so did Joseph because he decided to stay with her. She suffered that way. And then as a parent, I can't even imagine the suffering she went through watching her son being executed. She suffered. Suffering, suffering is never written into our script. But it's real and it happens and we cannot avoid it. Suffering is not just something that we get past but rather it's something that shapes and forms us as God walks with us through it. Uh, Maltby Babcock write, wrote this. The tests of life are to make, not break us. Trouble may demolish a person's business, but build up his or her character. The blow at the outward man may be the greatest blessing to the inward man. If God then permits anything hard in our lives, be sure that the real peril, the real trouble is what we shall lose if we flinch or rebel. So suffering is real, yet, number three, God is sovereign. And I know there's some tension there, but God is sovereign. This reminds us that God is sovereign, this story of Mary. Things may be out of our control, but they are never out of his control. And that can be a great blessing of comfort to us when we feel like we're just overwhelmed. It may not be our script, but it is his. And that leads to number four. God has purpose for us, and he has purpose for us now, and he has purpose for us all the way to the end, and we need to remember that. Our purpose, here you go, most likely our purpose will not be as grand as Mary's purpose, my guess, but we need to understand that he's going to give us purpose where we are, as we are. So many of us have been told by culture or whoever that we can change the world. We can be the difference in the world. 
And then we get frustrated when we really can't do that big of a job because we really can't. We get frustrated, we, we quit, we might even pout and cry and declare unfair. But God certainly can use us to make a difference in our world, in our sphere of influence. Why isn't that enough for us? Why isn't that enough for us? And you know what? Your sphere of influence may be as a single parent with one child. And that's your purpose. And that's your sphere of influence. And that's what God has given you. And it's the best that he can give you. And it's the best that you could do. And it's awesome. Where you work, where you teach, where you go to school, your neighborhood, wherever it is, let that be enough for us. And then remember that even as you get older, He's still going to keep using you, probably in different ways, but he's going to keep using you. You know the story of Moses in the Old Testament. God didn't use him until he was 80. 80. I got 23 years to go. It's amazing. And Mary, Mary's purpose wasn't over at the crucifixion. She was an important part of that early church as well. So not just now, but to the end. So trust. Trust in the midst of Life being unpredictable, our, our real suffering, trust that God is sovereign and that he has a purpose for us. We, we need to understand that Advent is not just about redemption and justice, though it is, but it's also about trust. Let's trust in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for Mary and her ministry to us. What an incredible ministry. We thank you for your son Jesus, the only name by which we can have salvation. So God, I pray that you would give us the courage to live this life, to live a life that's unpredictable and filled with suffering, but also that we understand we have purpose and that you are sovereign in the midst of it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do come to our time.